We're starting a new series of um, talks, and as most of you know, we're going to be using this text, The Sword of Wisdom. I think we still have a few copies if people are interested in um, buying them. The text is by Chan Master Shen Yang. Shen Yang teaches in um, Taiwan and also in New York, and he's written a number of books. And we pick this one. I think um, it doesn't really matter which of his books we pick. They're all very good. This book is um, based on the Song of Enlightenment, the Sutra, the Song of Enlightenment, which was written about 2,000 years ago. And what I would recommend is that for um, next month, if people would read the foreword, uh, which is a little about Master Shen Yen, and then read the introduction, which is a historical introduction about the Sutra, the Song of Enlightenment. And uh, I, I'm not going to talk about that tonight. I'd like to talk about the first chapter. Then the Song of Enlightenment itself uh, is at the very beginning of the book on page uh, 19 through 31. It's fairly long, and the book goes through the sutra a few sentences at a time, about a paragraph at a time. So we'll go through the, the book about one or two chapters at a time. So if you would read ahead, like tonight I'll be talking about the first chapter, so if for next time you'd read the introduction and the first chapter and the second chapter, and really think about it during the month, then you'll be ready ahead of time for the next talk. Don't necessarily think of questions. Um, sometimes when you read a book like this, the mind gets going. It's one of the disadvantages of using a text uh, for a talks. The, the advantage is that the text kind of structures the talks and, and helps us move through uh, something in a simple, straightforward way. The disadvantage is that when you're reading a text, your mind tends to get going. So try not to generate questions from the text, um, kind of intellectual questions about the text. Um, but really let it, let it sink in, both the Song of Enlightenment and what Shen Yang is saying. Let it sink in and, and try to practice it. If there are words that kind of stand out or phrases that kind of stand out, try to practice with them, absorb them and use them. The first chapter is called Non-Opposition. And he starts with the first paragraph of the Song of Enlightenment. Have you not seen the idle man of Tao, or we could say the man of the way, have you not seen the idle man or woman of the way who has nothing to learn and nothing to do? who neither discards wandering thoughts nor seeks the truth. The real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature. The illusory empty body is the Dharma body. I'll read it once again because that's the basis of the first chapter. Have you not seen the idle man or woman of the way who has nothing to learn and nothing to do? who neither discards wandering thoughts nor seeks the truth. 
The real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature. The illusory empty, empty body is the Dharma body. One of the key phrases in Shenyang's um, commentary in the first chapter, he's talking uh, as, from this text as they're doing retreats. So each night he gives a talk on a different paragraph. And so it has that structure, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. You don't have to be doing retreat to, do, to uh, use this text, although it could be used uh, during a retreat. On page 36, he says, During retreat, I advise participants not to try to get rid of anything, oppose anything, or seek anything. Agreeing with me is easy but accepting my advice and putting it to practice is difficult. Some of you may feel it is impossible to stop seeking and repressing things. Nonetheless, you must try. I will repeat this over and over, because if I do not, you will create more obstructions in your desire to stop wandering thoughts and to gain enlightenment. There is no need to dispel wandering thoughts. Deluded thoughts stem from ignorance, and the essential nature of ignorance is not separate from Buddha nature. So during retreat, I advise participants not to try to get rid of anything, oppose anything, or seek anything. I wanted to talk about that just for a minute. That's kind of a hard, a hard idea, not to get rid of anything, oppose anything, or seek anything. And I want to talk about that related to practice right now, not particularly related to the outside world, although we'll talk about that too. In a way, these three concepts, not to try to get rid of anything, not to try to oppose anything, or not to try to seek anything, correspond to the three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance. So not to try to get rid of anything, in a way, corresponds to greed. We're greedy in our, in our desire to get rid of our delusion, in our desire to get rid of our suffering, when we practice in our desire to get rid of our thoughts, our emotions, we try to squish them down. But it's interesting, if you sat retreats, I think you realize after a while that the first couple of days when you're trying all of these things, trying to quiet the mind, trying to quiet the body, trying to squish thoughts, trying to clear the mind, it really doesn't matter in a way what goes on those first couple of days in a retreat. The practice has its own rhythm and takes over. And all of the stuff that we do is extra. In a way, it kind of entertains us for the first couple of days until the practice takes over. And it happens naturally. And it's, you know, it's okay, whatever we want to do the first couple of days or, or tonight on Thursday night, the first sitting. That's fine. But in a way, the more we push something away or the more we grab something and pull it towards us, trying to get rid of something, trying to get rid of the thoughts that we sit down with on a Thursday night, try to get rid of the pain that we might bring on a Thursday night to sitting. The more we try to push it away, in a way, the stronger it gets. As we've talked about a lot before, the best way to sit is to just let things settle naturally, rather than trying to do things. Now, we have all of these, these little tricks that we've talked about before, like counting the breath that helps the mind settle and kind of keeps us occupied while the mind is settling. That's fine. But not to think that that's really doing anything, that that's really accomplishing anything. 
that if we can count to 10, that that's really getting somewhere in the practice. It's really just a kind of a trick to bide our time while the practice takes over and lets the mind settle down. You know, I have all the same problems that all of you do when I first come and sit down on a Thursday night or at the beginning of a retreat. You know, I come directly here from work. My mind is just full of all the things that have happened during the day. Um, all of my concerns, all of my worries. And, the, and, for the, and I'm also often tired because I haven't had enough sleep. And so for the first period, I'm doing the same things that you all are doing. There's nothing different about what a teacher is doing, except the teacher maybe has learned through practice to be patient with the process and just let it happen. And through practice, the, the process gets more efficient sometimes, too. Easier to do. So for the first period, if I really worried about how am I sitting, am I sitting well, I would think this is useless, this is ridiculous, this first period is totally wasted. I don't get anywhere until the second period. You know, that's what the mind has to say about sitting sometimes. This is not good sitting. This is wasted. But that's not really what's happening in sitting. Just the fact that we are sitting down is wonderful practice. So much is going on that we don't know and we don't perceive. We shouldn't judge it. You know, the, the tenth precept is do not speak ill of the three treasures. And when we carry on that kind of dialogue about this was a bad sitting, I didn't sit well, my mind was too busy, I'm not practicing well, that's speaking ill of the three treasures. It's speaking ill of the Buddha body, of practice itself. Just let it be. So not to try to get rid of anything, not to be greedy to get rid of anything or get anything. So what's the opposite of that? When Shen Yang says, don't try to get rid of anything. Just let it happen. We talk about letting go you know, it sort of seems like letting, when, when the Zen teacher says, let go, that that's trying to get rid of something. But the more we try, the worse we make it, the more we are interfering with the process. So letting go means letting go in that easy sense. And just sitting, letting go of all the judgments. Yes, I had a thought. Yes, I had an emotion. Yes, I started to fall asleep. And just let it happen let go of all the extra stuff that we call the head on top of our own. Then the second thing Shenyin talks about is not to try to oppose anything, not to oppose anything. In a way that corresponds to the poison of anger. What is anger? Anger is really opposing something. Anger is the thought or the emotion, no. I don't like this, I don't want this, I don't want this to happen, stop. So anger and opposition go together. Chen Yang titles this, this chapter non-opposition. You could call it non-anger if you wanted to. Anger is the more overt manifestation of it. Opposition is a more subtle manifestation of it. Not to oppose anything. For example, tonight during the second period I was just trying this as a practice, non-opposition. 
And I would recommend that for the next month. Take the title of this first chapter and really practice it, non-opposition. I don't mean lie down and be a jellyfish, but just think when something comes up in life that's difficult, think of non-opposition. So some examples. My father called last night and he said that he might have prostate cancer. So, you know, the immediate, my immediate thought and my immediate reaction, which is natural for anyone who loves someone who might be ill and might die, is no, I don't want this to happen. Well, what does that do? That causes suffering for me and for him. Am I going to change the fact that he might have cancer by saying no, by opposing it? No. What will happen will happen. All I will do is add suffering for me and for him. Shen Yang talks about the difference between pain and suffering. Pain is just plain pain. Suffering is what we add on top of that. So pain might be, in this case, old age. My father's in his mid-70s. He's had quadruple bypass. He's had four hernia operations. He's had two hip operations. Every time he seems to bounce back. But his body is falling apart. So plain pain, as the Buddha described it, the first noble truth, pain, suffering. What is that suffering? The first aspect of suffering is ordinary pain. Old age, your body falling apart, mind falling apart. Disease, cancer, and death. Then the second type of suffering that the Buddha talked about was suffering because of change. So when I see my dad getting old, instead of just saying, my dad is getting old and I'm getting old, on top of that comes suffering. I don't want my dad to get old. I don't want to get old. I don't want to hurt. I don't want my body to fall apart. I don't want my mind to fall apart. So what does that do? That adds suffering on top of the simple fact of getting old. I don't want to not have a dad. I'm too young not to have a dad. I want my dad. Does that change what's going to happen? No. It's just my reaction to what's happening. Does that mean my reaction's bad? No. It's just a reaction. So suffering because of change. Because I want my dad to be young, I want my dad to be healthy, I want my dad to have a healthy mind. I want me to be young, I want me to be healthy, I want me to have a healthy mind. And if he gets sick and he dies, then that advances me forward into the next, into the front, into the front guard. That means I'm next. That's scary. So suffering because of change. And that's, a, you know, that's an obvious form of it. But there are subtle forms of it. Like tonight in the second period, I was looking at opposition, the subtle forms of opposition. So for example, the cushion that I was sitting on was hard. And 
I sat for about a half an hour before the first period began. So towards the end of the, se the second period, my right, the right part of my rear end was getting quite uncomfortable. And so I was starting to do this very subtle wiggling with my right buttock to kind of relieve the pressure. Well, what is that? That's opposition, a subtle form of opposition. So then I, when I noticed it, because I didn't even notice I was doing it, when I noticed it, I stopped and just sat with, what is that sensation? That sensation of pressure. And just opened up to it. The opposite of opposition, opening up. What is that sensation? And then the next sort of subtle form of opposition that came up is I was getting too hot because the heat was on. And I have one extra layer tonight that I don't usually wear. I don't like being hot. So I started getting hot. And I noticed that there was this sort of subtle opposition to being hot. So as soon as, as soon as I noticed it, let it go. Because is it, is it going to change things to oppose being too hot? No. I'm still going to be hot. I'm still going to be warm. Two is, the, two is the value judgment in there. See, that's the subtle opposition. I'm too hot. Not just hot. Hot's okay, but too hot is opposition. So just be hot. So as soon as I notice that subtle opposition, let it go, flip over, and just be warm, be hot. So it's a very interesting practice, non-opposition. Try it this next month. Try it probably first while you're, while you're sitting, and just notice opposition as, as thoughts come up, as sensations come up. Notice that movement into opposition. You know, we think, we think, well, in daily life, I have to oppose things. I mean, this life is not going to work unless I oppose things. I mean, we have to oppose, oppose war, and we have to oppose human suffering, and we have to oppose pollution of the environment, and we have to oppose, you know, Bush getting elected, or Clinton getting elected, or whatever we think has to be opposed. We have lots of ideas and opinions about how things should be. And that's okay, that's fine to have them. But to realize that our very opposition may have many profound and subtle effects that we're not aware of. They may, it may even prolong the very thing we're trying to get rid of. Not that that's good or bad, just to realize it, that our very thoughts and our very emotions have impact in the chain of cause and effect. And that we don't know the outcome for example, I was telling Lauren that several years ago when I was at the Zen Center and I was sitting all the time, it seemed like, like cause and effect, like karma, cause and effect was almost speeding up in my life. And instead of having, you know, doing something and then noticing the effect a day later, a week later, two weeks later, it would be almost like instantaneously it would turn around and I would notice the effect. And it got to be kind of scary to see that happening so fast. And recently I had, I had an example that kind of brought that up to mind again. I had, I'm just writing a chapter for a child abuse textbook on child abuse by poisoning. And since 1985, 
up until this year, we've had only one case of child abuse, a child dying by poisoning. And I started writing this chapter late last year. And since I started writing the chapter, we've had three deaths in the state of child abuse by, by poisoning. And, uh, you know, I started to get a little worried <laughs> that maybe all the energy that I'm putting into this chapter, into thinking about child abuse by poisoning, is maybe having an effect. Now, I mean, you can say that's silly, and it, and it kind of is silly, but still, when, you, when your mind is really quiet, you can see things happening like that. That a, that a thought has a reaction, an, a, an action, a physical action has an action. And not always the one that we anticipated. I'm also, I was also doing a talk, I did a talk at the end of last year for a huge conference of pediatricians from around the country on child fatalities. Can we prevent them? And um, I'm doing a, writing something on child, child abuse fatalities. Can we, can we prevent them? Child, child, child fatalities by child abuse. And as I'm working on, the, on that concept this year, we've already had more child abuse deaths in Oregon than we had all of last year in the entire year. So it's, it gets a little scary, you know, you begin to wonder, maybe we shouldn't, I shouldn't turn my energy so strongly this way or that way. Um, you know, I'm not saying that I shouldn't do that, but just, just to be aware of thoughts and actions and their reactions. So non-opposition, not to oppose anything, not to get rid of anything, not to seek anything. Not to seek anything, that in a way corresponds to ignorance. It's ignorance to think that there is anything to seek outside of this life. And we all are ignorant. We all think to one degree or another that there is something to seek outside of this life. That this life is not the Buddha life, the enlightened life. That this body is not the Buddha body. And you say, well, we are seeking something. Obviously, we wouldn't be here sitting if we weren't seeking something. What we're seeking is to see through the cloud that surrounds being able to see clearly that our life is Buddha life. That the pain in the right side of my rear end is the Buddha body. That being too hot is enlightened nature. At giving a talk, listening to a talk, Hearing the heaters go bonk, bonk, bonk is the life of the Buddha. There's nothing to seek outside of it. There's nothing to oppose if it's all the life of the Buddha. If we do oppose, we're denying the life of the Buddha. If we do seek outside of it, we're denying that this is the life of the Buddha. 
So to sit in full confidence that this is the life of the Buddha, including the pain in your knee, the pain in your back, the distracting thought, the too hot, the too cold. This is the life of the Buddha. Nothing to seek. Just sit down, quiet down, and it will become obvious. We may, we may speak as a matter of convention of leaving ignorance and gaining enlightenment. But when one is truly enlightened, one realizes that ignorance and Buddha nature are one and the same. If ignorance and Buddha nature truly existed as permanent separate realms, then an ignorant person would never discover his Buddha nature. He would remain ignorant and would be unable to attain enlightenment. But this is not the case. Ignorance and Buddha nature are not separate. In making the transition from ignorance to Buddha nature, you will realize that ignorance does not really exist. If it did, we would all be bound to it forever. Anyone practicing who understands this principle will not strive to get rid of ignorance or seek after Buddha nature because they are the same. Nothing to oppose, nothing to get rid of, nothing to seek. When you practice and your body tires and your mind fills with turmoil and vexation, it is easy to start struggling with yourself. If you oppose weariness and vexation, then you will only become more tired and create more vexations. You will lose heart. For example, tonight when I was opposing the heat, I was just getting hotter. And as soon as I withdrew that resistance and just let it be, I was comfortable. Warm, but comfortable. If you oppose weariness and vexation, then you will only become more tired and create more vexations. You will lose heart. It is better if you say to yourself, this is ignorance, and ignorance itself is Buddha nature. I won't resist, I won't get angry, I won't fight my condition. If what you experience is Buddha nature, then what is there to hate or fight? But when you sit, you will suffer pains, fatigue, and wandering thoughts. While you are suffering, it will be hard to believe the things I say. It is difficult to relax and allow things to be as they are. You may even think that these obstacles arise precisely because you are practicing the way, that somehow the pains have a mind of their own and they are waiting for you to sit and meditate. When you become enlightened, you will realize that vexations are Buddha nature, and in fact, ignorance does not exist. It is difficult to relax and allow things to be as they are. That's exactly what our practice is, to relax the body and relax the mind and allow things to be as they are. They are as they are, but we're continually opposing that. Eliminate the opposition and what's really there becomes obvious. 
During the course of your practice, you will suffer pains of many kinds. Even if you have not yet realized that the physical body is the same as the Dharma body, you should at least have faith that it is so. If you have faith, then you will not be vexed or distracted by sensations that arise in your practice, whether they be painful, pleasurable, or even blissful. The Dharma body is pure and immutable. It does not experience sensation. You should regard all sensation in your practice as illusions. Let them come and go. Do not attach to them. I don't want to talk about this too much tonight, but I just want to remind you, because we'll be talking about it as we go through this book, of the cycle of samsara and the five skandhas. It's a really important Buddhist concept. And when uh, Lauren and I were doing the workshop that we did back at the Zen Mountain, Zen Mountain Monastery, uh, I went back through the text that we used a couple of years ago, what the Buddha taught, and looked again at the principle of the five skandhas and the cycle of samsara. And uh, it's a very interesting concept and the Buddha was amazingly wise 2,500 years ago. It's, a, it's called conditioned existence and I had never really realized that conditioned means conditioned in the sense of Pavlovian conditioning. And the way the Buddha outlines conditioned existence in the cycle of samsara is that first and fundamentally we have form. And under form is included physical form, like the ears, the actual ears, the physical ears, the physical eyes, the physical nose, the physical mouth, the physical body, and the physical mind. That's the hardest part for us to grasp, that the physical mind, in the Buddhist way of thinking, is just an organ, a physical organ, like the ears. And then we have the physical phenomenon that we say is out, are out here. We have the physical phenomenon of sound waves, you know, the vibrations in the air that represent sound, and then light waves, the photons and the vibrations in the, in the air that represent light, and then the molecules that represent odor and taste, that physical phenomenon. And then the hardest one again to grasp is thought as a physical phenomenon, as an electrical phenomenon in the brain, electrical chemical phenomenon happening somewhere in the place we call the brain. I mean, who knows, it could be happening outside. I think a neat way to think about it is kind of take thought out of here, out of this little compartment, and think of thought like radio waves. You know, all around us right now are zillions of waves in the air. There's radio waves, there's TV waves, there's microwaves. You know, if you could make them visible, this, the air is just like bzzz, alive with it. So think of thought the same way. The air is just alive with bzzz, thought. And what the brain is, is like a receiver, like a radio receiver. And it can pick up some of that. And it just sort of wanders through, you know, like ring, sort of like the radio and different channels and the TV and different channels. That's the way the Buddha conceived of the mind. It's just like there's an eye, a physical organ, the eye, and then there are these light waves. And when you impact the two on each other, you can get sensation, the sensation of light. 
and you have sound waves that are and they impinge on this physical organ, the ear, and you can get the sensation sound. And the same with thought, that there's this physical phenomenon called thought, whether you want to think of it as out here or in here, and when it happens and impinges on the organ we call the brain, you get the sensation of thought. Now, before you started practice, you never would have thought of the sensation of thought. But when you sit down and practice, you have that actual sensation of a thought. You never had that, that sensation before of a thought arising and through and disappearing. Just like the sensation of light, the sensation of sound. We, we Westerners are so caught up in thought is me that it's very hard to separate out and think of the brain as an organ like the eye and thought as a light wave or a sound wave. So we, we're going to work with that some more in the next few months. So we've got the physical form, that's the eyes, the ears, the nose, and so on, and the physical phenomenon of sound waves, light waves, thought waves. And you put the two together and you get sensation. But sensation has no awareness. It's just the two things impinging on each other. The next step is awareness. Light, sound, smell, taste, thought. And that's really what's happening when we're sitting. We're sitting often in just awareness of light, sound, smell, touch, taste, thought. Thought, 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 light, sound, thought, 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 smell, thought, 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 smell, and so on. That's what a lot of our sitting is about. It's just sensation. Then the next step is movement. The simplest way to think of it is aversion, desire and aversion. So there's sensation, like smell, but then the next step is, ooh, I like that smell. Let me smell it some more. Or, ooh, what a terrible smell, ooh. There's a movement towards and away. And in, in, in the Buddhist way of thinking, that's the first step at which cause and effect enters, when there's actually movement towards or away something. So with pure form, with pure sensation, with pure perception, there's no cause and effect, nothing happening, except the phenomenon themselves, but no reaction. It's at that next step of movement towards or movement away that we start to get cause and effect and set that chain in, in, in cycle and going. Going and going and going and going forever and ever. So we have a thought. And the thought arises and goes through and we perceive it, and then we think, ooh, I like that thought. Let me think about that some more. Oh, that's nice. Let me, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that would be nice. So that's the point at which there's movement towards or away, like, ooh, that's horrible to think of. I don't want to think about that. That's disgusting. And move away from it. So that's the point at which there's movement. And then what happens is the next step is the concept of self. And it's like a conditioned phenomenon. You know, like in the Pavlovian conditioning, 
the dog, you give the dog food and you ring a bell every time. And pretty soon when you ring the bell, the dog salivates. And what happens in this Buddhist conditioned existence is over and over and over again, we have form, light waves, sound waves, etc. Sensation, perception, reaction, form, sensation, perception, reaction, form, sensation, perception, reaction. And pretty soon out of that comes this idea of I am a person who likes the smell of roses, who doesn't like the smell of garbage, who likes to plan for the future, who doesn't like to think about the bad things in the past. So this keeps happening over and over and over again as we're growing up from infancy. And it keeps conditioning this idea of self. So pretty soon, all you have to have is the bell rings and you salivate. That is, a thought happens and you think, I am. I think, therefore I am. That's it. I think, therefore I am. I see, therefore I am. I hear, therefore I am. I love, therefore I am. I dislike, therefore I am. And this just keeps happening over and over and over again, making the idea of self stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And then usually there comes a point in our lives when we say, this is disgusting. I hate this. This is making me miserable. This idea of who I am. And then we come to practice. And what we do in practice is sort of go backwards on that wheel. So we sit, we sit down and we quiet our body, because the body is the same thing. I am the person with the hurting knee. I am the her person with the hurting right butt. I am the person with the sore throat. I am the person with the allergies. I am the person with the curly hair. I am the person with the straight hair. I am the person. You know, so we sit the body down and quiet the body down so it's not giving us these constant messages, the ringing of the bell, ding, 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 ding. I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. We sit down, we quiet down the body messages, and then we quiet down the mind messages. So we stop at that level of action. And sure, while we're sitting, we have aversion and desire and aversion and desire. Pretty soon that quiets down. We sort of move back up the cycle to the level of just plain perception, just plain awareness. Now it's very tempting to want to stay in that place all the time. Once we touch it, pure awareness, it's like, oh, this is so wonderful. There's no me here. There's just things happening. It is such a relief to get rid of that body and mind that we drag around, that concept of who we are, that we drag around after us like a corpse. It is so great to get rid of it and just have pure awareness happening. That we want to stay there. And we, after a retreat's over, we think, oh, this is so terrible, I have to go back and be myself. But you know, there's nothing wrong with being ourselves. We are who we are. We are all of that. We are the form, we're the sensation, we're the perception, we're the discrimination towards and against, we're the action, we're the concept of self. It's just that the concept of self has taken up 99.999% of our awareness of who we are. When we sit, kind of let that go and see the other aspects of who we are. 
form, sensation, perception, discrimination, thought, and so on. So for a while when we're sitting, we kind of reverse the cycle and spin it in the opposite direction. We begin to unravel that conditioning. So every thought doesn't make us automatically assume I am. Every sensation doesn't automatically assume, make us assume I am. And the concept of self gets looser, and as it gets looser, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. To, accom- to, accom- to accommodate all of that, not just accommodate it, accommodate it means there's something, someone accommodating it. But it just gets larger and larger and larger, the boundaries drop. So that's what's happening in our practice. And if you want to, go back and read that chapter in What the Buddha Taught. Look at it again with that kind of that point of view of conditioning being conditioned into thinking we are something because that's fundamental to our suffering and Shen Yin talks about it in the second chapter okay so for this month read the first and second chapters in the Sword of Wisdom and maybe go back if you have what the Buddha taught or you can borrow it and read the chapter on conditioned existence and practice non-opposition Thank you.